0: is one of Australia's leading public policy thinkers. He was the inaugural chief executive at the Grattan Institute for its first 11 years. And while at Grattan, John has published leading reports on institutional reform, government priorities, budget policy, tax reform, retirement incomes, and housing affordability. He has 30 years' experience spanning academic, government and corporate roles at the University of Melbourne, the University of Oxford, the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet, consulting firm McKinsey & Co and ANZ Bank. Ed Blakely is a former Washington insider, an internationally recognised leader in urban development and planning, advisor and author.
1: Well, John Daly, you and I have known one another for a few years. I was at the U.S. Study Centre when you were at the Grattan Institute. Tell me a little bit about what the Grattan Institute is, and what you've been doing.
2: So the Grattan Institute is a independent think tank, uh, positioned, if you like, centre of centre, which is another way of saying that we work very hard at um, offending all sides of politics at various stages. That I means must say that, you're uh, expert at it. Exactly, great expertise in that. That means that all sides of politics also use our work at various stages, usually not at the same time on the same proposition. Um, And it's put out um, an enormous quantity of research and then talked about it in public on everything from tax reform to cities, to transport, to health, to school education, higher education, uh, and an increasing amount of work in institutional reform, uh, which is something that I've been turning to more recently.
1: So and yourself, what's your background?
2: So I started off life as a lawyer, but I lapsed very early. Uh, and uh, did some um, political philosophy instead. Uh, and then like um, everybody who's got a PhD, I was unemployable. So I worked as a management consultant for a while. I uh, worked in, in um, uh, business for a while for the ANZ Bank. And then about 12 years ago, Grattan Institute was being founded. And that was something that was a little bit public sector, a little bit private sector, and a little bit academic. And that seemed perfect for my background.
1: Well, that's about the same time the US Study Center was
2: founded, isn't it? I think that's about right, yes. That was a, In fact, the US Studies was a little earlier. Uh, and indeed, many of the people who were um, uh, involved in the bid to get the US Studies Center to go to Melbourne um, were very disappointed that it went to Sydney, and so instead um, uh, put their efforts into founding Grattan Institute a year or two later.
1: Excellent. And you've done a superb job. Uh, being Australia's kind of public policy think tank. I, think of you as the uh, ones in the States like Brookings, uh, very much in that mold and model.
2: Yeah, well, that's certainly one of the major, Brookings and, and the American um, Enterprise Institute Yes, um, are the two that we really looked very long and hard at. And I went and visited both of them uh, very early when I started at Grattan Institute. And I took a lot away from both of them in terms of how do you run a, think, a successful think tank that really does change both the public debate and the debate amongst politicians and public servants so that you can improve the policy for a country.
1: Yes, and I've worked with uh, Brookings for many years. I'm still associated with Brookings. So, John, we're talking about something today, this very day, may be a major breakthrough. Gridlock unlocked in America. For the first time in 12 years, Can you imagine a bipartisan piece of legislation that affects the entire nation passed by both houses and both parties? So we broke the iceberg. So, and you've written a great paper on gridlock. Let's start talking about what is gridlock? What does that mean?
2: Well, of course, our image is immediately of traffic, um, and uh, that's even more familiar to a US audience perhaps than an Australian audience in terms of traffic that's um, stuck, all trying to head in different directions and ultimately nobody going anywhere. And in terms of the report that we've written, I guess we were looking at policy reform in Australia um, and, and asking what's been happening and what Came out of that report was to say, over the last decade or so, Australia has actually made relatively little progress in terms of all of the major reforms, policy reforms that we need in everything from health to school education to higher education. Made Let rele- me interrupt you there. Sorry, second. What country has? Germany um, hasn't. Yeah. So UK look, UK hasn't. Is, yeah. This was not an international study there's only so many things you can do in 90 pages. no but you
1: hear what i'm saying yeah no the no it seems to be an international phenomena and it's killed uh, lebanon
2: yep oh there's no question that it's that many of the drivers of it particularly the shifting way that the media works the shifting incentives for people in, involved in politics um, have meant the same kind of dynamics have been playing out in countries around the world. Um, uh, New Zealand, interestingly, um, which uh, of course is always a little higher on the Australian radar than perhaps the US radar. I would actually dominate New Zealand as being a country that's actually done pretty well they over have. the last 15 years.
1: But they made a big shift from the right to the left.
2: Uh, they made a substantial shift, but I think they were making a lot more progress while they were being run by the right than lots of other countries being run by the right at the That's time. Right. And they've made a lot more progress being run by the left than lots of other countries that have got left-wing government. So, so I so, think that it's actually more about the institutions than it is about the colour of the government.
1: Yes, it is. So let's talk a little bit about what your study uh, found. My audience is international, so we'll have to start a bit by you working with a parliamentary form of government yeah, and most of the governments around the world are parliamentary form. Uh, tell us what the role of the federal government is versus the states in Australia. Uh, yeah. That's uh, a bit peculiar.
2: Well, everyone thinks about federations as being peculiar, but they're actually quite a common form of government. Of course, the United States is a federation, Canada is a federation, uh, Germany is a federation. um, uh, And so you have a central government um, with responsibilities for the things that tend to need more in the way of a national approach. And then in Australia's case, six states and two territories, and I won't go into the kind of complex legal differences between the states and territories, but for the purposes of argument, think of them as being eight subsidiary units that are responsible um, for things that are more locally driven. And as always, there's a bit of an overlap. So in general, the federal government does things like defense, foreign affairs, um, regulation of corporations, competition law, uh, income, uh, company tax, uh, personal tax, um, uh, higher education, so um, universities. Um, it does. And that's not, really
1: unusual.
2: Yeah, that, that's and as always, the division of responsibilities in in federations is as much a question of history um, as it is of the actual legal and constitutional setup. Um, yes, we uh, the federal government is in effect responsible for higher education, and yes, that is unusual. In many other countries, The it's the states that essentially do most of the heavy lifting there. Um, the states are mainly responsible for transport. They're responsible for almost all cities policy, you know, things like zoning and um, planning and transport and so on. Um, uh, and health is very much divided. So the federal government essentially pays for, um, primary healthcare um, and and healthcare delivered almost by individuals. So it it pays for going to the GP, it pays for visiting the specialist, um, it pays for um, or subsidizes um, pharmaceuticals. The states on the other hand are responsible for hospitals and for community health.
1: So now we have this context. I heard you on the radio talking about the gridlocks and the great reforms. What are the big reforms that have failed because of gridlock in Australia?
2: So look, there's a series. Um, we, um, starting with cities, cause I know that's always been a passion of yours. Um, we've made a bit of progress in terms of um, making it easier to develop the, redevelop the middle and, and inner middle rings of our cities. but there's still a large chunk that are not locked up by NIMBYism. And to your point earlier, these are policy failures around the world. That's one that perhaps, you know, more than any other is a policy failure around the world. And the consequence, of course, is that housing is becoming less and less affordable for a younger generation. Everywhere. Everywhere. Everywhere, because everywhere people believe that um, there should be more development that their children can move can move into in the suburb Next to theirs.
1: Next to theirs, yes. But not in uh, theirs.
2: But definitely not in theirs. Absolutely not. Because theirs is special. Very special. Very special.
1: So uh, what? Were the, so housing has been a failure.
2: Yeah, housing we have not done well. Um, tax reform has basically not moved for really two decades. Um, That's about the
1: same as the US.
2: Yeah. Except same for the, the
1: big US. one that... Uh, Truck made.
2: Yeah. Well, um, if, if you consider slashing tax rates in a way that's clearly unaffordable for the budget to be a desirable reform, then yes, that's true. If you think about tax reform as being changing the tax mix so that you collect the tax that you need, but you do it in the way that is most efficient and leads to a society that you want to have, then perhaps didn't do quite so well. That's uh, and right. perhaps where the US, like Australia and like many countries, has struggled is We all adopted tax systems about 30 years ago, often for- 50 years
1: ago, actually.
2: Yeah, often for what seemed like the right reasons um, that effectively didn't tax the income on investment particularly highly. The consequence of that, as we now know in the long run, was that the rich got a lot richer. Um, Wealth concentrated um, amongst the top, you know, a couple of percent of the population, And we've now all seen the kind of society that that created. uh, And many are not so sure that that was such a good idea. And if you're going to change that, then the fundamental thing you need to do is change the balance of taxation between taxes on investments as opposed to taxes on incomes as opposed to taxes on property and other kinds of taxes.
1: And we've made very little, precious little change in in
2: either country. That would be fair. Um, interesting, Australia came quite close. So the ALP went to the last election with, uh, so that's the opposition in Australia, the left-wing opposition nationally, went to the election with a policy to substantially increase the tax on capital gains um, and reduce um, the deductions you could claim for interest um, uh, on your um, investments. And that would have had, look, well, it wasn't gonna solve the entire problem, but it was certainly gonna be heading in the right direction. Again, the United
1: States tried exactly the same thing.
2: Interestingly, the ALP lost that election, but not by very much. And and the analysis that we did at the time, literally looking at it at a a booth by booth level, suggested very strongly that they they did not lose the election because of that policy. And that doesn't surprise me. If you look at um, polling on that issue in Australia, um, far more people would prefer to change the arrangements so that in effect we tax investments more than we do at the moment. Then people would prefer to leave things as they are.
1: And that's interesting. About 70% of Americans want the rich tax more and corporations tax more and capital gains tax more. But that 10 or 15% owns the politicians.
2: Well, in Australia, it certainly um, has captured the right side of politics, yes. so the coalition in Australia. Um, and you can see that um, one of the things that we think is is blocking reform in Australia, and I suspect that this is an international phenomenon, um, is we have an increasing number of what we called in the report shibboleths. So tribal beliefs that parties have that in order to be a part of the tribe, you kind of have to believe whatever the belief is, the shibboleth. Um, and of mm-hmm. course, the the, the original meaning of the word shibboleth kind of illustrates exactly what the problem is. So the original meaning um, came when there were two tribes, you know, warring with each other in the Old Testament, which, of course, sums up an awful lot of the Old Testament. Um, and one of the tribes that got stuck on the wrong side of the river. Uh, and the party that held the crossing point on the, the, the tribe that held the crossing point on the river said as the password, the Hebrew word shibboleth, which means an ear of corn in Hebrew. Um, and the reason they set that as the password is that they knew that the other the other tribe pronounced it differently so mm-hmm. they pronounced it as shibboleth um, so they you know what's the password and if you said shibboleth then they you know stuck a spear through you and you can get over the river and where it's of course come down to us in english exactly the same word shibboleth because um, it you know it comes through the the bible um, it's a It's a a belief that you hold, usually not based in any kind of rationality, but because you hold that belief, you're a member of our tribe. And so one of those shibboleths in Australian politics um, has been that the right wing of politics says we will never, ever cut, sorry, um, increase the um, tax rate on anything. Now, they're actually quite happy to see the total tax take go up Uh, and indeed the average tax take as a percentage of GDP has been higher under the last two right-wing governments in Australia than either of the previous two left-wing governments but you know that's exactly the kind of story that you don't let get in the way of a good shibboleth Um, uh, and instead what we do see is Liberal governments simply refusing under any circumstances to increase the tax rate on anything. And of course, the essence of good tax reform is that you increase the tax rates on some things and you don't increase the tax rates on, and you reduce the tax rates on other things. Um, And so, for example, you might well want to increase the tax rates on capital gains and reduce your income tax rates, particularly for those on lower incomes, um, precisely because you wanted to essentially redistribute income. And that's precisely the thing that the Liberal Party has not countenanced with one exception, and it's very revealing. So um, the Turnbull government, um, when it was re-elected, um, did put through substantial changes to superannuation. So we, we wound up with this situation in which essentially old, very rich people were paying literally no tax um, on very, very large quantities of investment. Now, let me interrupt
1: tax. you. Superannuation means retirement funds.
2: Yeah. Um, and we've got a, a whole sort of legislative arrangement around that in Australia. Um, And we had this situation in which yes, if you had literally $100 million um, in superannuation and there were people who had that kind of money, then they paid literally no tax on the earnings at all. Um, And this was obviously not a sustainable arrangement. um, And the Liberal government was worried about the time politically about um, accusations that Malcolm Turnbull, then the prime minister um, um, who, has done very well in life, uh, and would be fair to say, as as, what they say, man of independent means at this point, um, uh, was was worried about the opposition labeling him a fat cat. Um, The the cartoonists were always painting him with a sort of top hat. Uh, And so there was a lot of public pressure about the way that these superannuation tax arrangements were primarily, you know, essentially a terrific tax dodge for rich old men. Um, And don't get me wrong, I've got nothing against rich old men. I hope to become one of those myself in due course. But I'm old,
1: but not rich.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I expect that I should pay some tax if that does indeed happen. Um, uh, So they did put through some changes to this. And the catch was that the Liberal Party members, bearing in mind that's a very small number of people, best estimate is it's about 50,000 people in the country, um, thought that this was just a total disaster, a complete repudiation of everything that the party stood for. Malcolm Turnbull t- talks in his biography about the way that you know senior donors rang up and said, "You have trashed everything that the party stands for. I am never ever going to vote for you again. I am never going to donate for you to you again." They th- they tried to. Um, uh, Uh, essentially stop the pre-selection of the minister who was responsible for this reform, Kelly O'Dwyer, so that she wouldn't be able to get back into Parliament. I mean, it was pretty nasty. And bear in mind that this was a a policy that was extremely popular. (laughs) So it didn't cost them any votes. And indeed, one of those beautiful ironies, it was most popular amongst rich old men because the rich old men knew exactly how unfair the current system was. And, and they have kids. Benefiting, thought that it was pretty stupid. Yes. <laughs> so what's another one that has ano-
1: another important, shigleties. but has had a hard time?
2: Sorry, say again, another? Another
1: policy that yeah. didn't make it, well,
2: Well, I've talked about one that was a shibboleth. The other big reason that policies are not happening is because they're unpopular, which is, look, hardly surprising in a democracy, but it's also true that liberal democracies are a balance between essentially whatever the popular will is on something today and, you know, a whole series of institutions that are designed to have some kind of expertise um, and to take us in the right direction in the long run. Uh, And if you look, as we did in the report, at the history of the 80s and 90s and 2000s, Australia did lots and lots of policies that were very unpopular at the time, um, privatising a bunch of industries, bringing down tariff barriers, many of them unilaterally, um, uh, introducing a capital gains tax, um, a whole series of competition reforms um, so that um, uh, there was much less feather bedding in a whole series of industries As I said, many of these reforms unpopular at the time. No question that they set the country up for decades worth of prosperity, Mm -hmm. um, but they were unpopular. And um, prime ministers and treasurers and senior ministers spent a lot of their time out on the um, airwaves trying to convince people that, although they didn't necessarily like this idea, it was, in fact, a good idea. And by and large, interestingly, those politicians got re-elected even if those policies remained unpopular. Whereas Mm. if we look at the history of the last 10 years in Australia of the 70 odd Grattan reforms that we looked at as our sort of sample set in the reform of in the report, um, about 15 of them were unpopular and not one of those 15 um, was um, implemented. Uh, And Really, politicians made very little effort to try and put them through. Now, one of those, of course, is the one we've already talked about, which is around um, uh, increasing density in our in the middle rings of our city, so that there's more property for people to move into. Another very good example is one um, in terms of increasing the age at which you qualify for the age pension, and for that matter, for your superannuation, your retirement income, private retirement income, um, from 67 to 70. Um, Australia's already moved it that age from 65 to 67, given the aging of the population, given the way that people live in much better health for much longer than they used to, um, given the impact of increasing the retirement age on the way that it does induce people to work for longer, partly because um, they don't qualify for the pension, but also very significantly because many people think that they should retire at the pension age. So it's a very powerful signal to people. And if you move that signal from 67 to 70, that'll have a material impact on people's decisions. It won't change everyone's decisions, but it will change a number of them. And so if we look at that, it's a a reform that the previous Labor government did actually succeed in moving the pension age from 65 to 67. Sort of happened before our study started. The Liberal government uh, in 2013 proposed moving it from 67 to 70, but they sort of put it up and never really talked about it. Uh, And they continued to not talk about it, and then they just dropped it and have never spoken about it again. It is
1: 67 right now.
2: Yes, yeah, well, it's slightly more complicated than that. It's gradually rising from 65 to 67. I don't think we've quite got to 67 yet, but we're we're close. And the way you would always implement that reform is slowly, so you did it over a period of years. I'm not suggesting we should move to 70 tomorrow, but we should tomorrow decide we're going to do it and put ourselves on that kind of glide path. Interestingly that- enough,
1: uh, 70 is the um, high end on Social Security in the United States, and a lot of people are now saying it. I'm going to take it at 70, but then they think about it and they actually are retiring earlier at 62 because they say, I may not live that long <laughs> and I want to enjoy myself for a long time. And the hedonistic aspects of enjoying themselves outweighs a few more dollars.
2: Yeah, well, and, and of course, a pension age um, is is not a compulsory retirement age in either direction. Is no, you want it to retire at 62 and you have the means to do it, good luck to you. Um, but the point is the taxpayer shouldn't be paying for that choice. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and and of course, the other difference is that um, uh, Australia has materially higher life expectancy than in the US. And yes. unlike in the US, it's continuing to increase pretty quickly, whereas the United States, it was flat to declining before COVID. And COVID's, in fact, I think chopped better part of a year off it.
1: Yes, so another one. These are all
2: parallels. <laughs> There's so many parallels. Well, why don't we stay in the area of retirement incomes just for a moment? At the moment in Australia, in when you apply for the age pension, we so-called means test the age pension. So if you're really rich, you don't get an age pension. But in terms of working out how that means test works, we, in effect, count the first $200,000 of your home and then ignore the rest. So if you're living in a $5 million mansion, you still qualify for the age pension. Yes. Um, And your children will inherit tax-free and with no encumbrances, your $5 million mansion. And what we, and and interestingly, I think every single think tank in Australia, um, right, left, centre and wacko, have all suggested the same kind of arrangement. Many of the independent reviews that have looked at this have have, uh, suggested the same kind of arrangement, which is we should say if you've got a $5 million home and no other assets, no other income, sure, you can get an age pension, but we will essentially take that age pension as a debt against against your your house. And we won't require you to sell it. And the kind of simple maths of this uh, essentially wind up there is just, unless you live to the age of about 400, Uh, the age pension that you collect is never going to add up to the value of your family home, not even remotely close. Um, So you can keep living in it. Your partner can keep living in it when you die. But then when you do die and the house gets sold, the age pension that, frankly, the taxpayers of Australia have paid for um, essentially gets paid back and your heirs get slightly less and of course the failure to do that means that we are just running a gigantic taxpayer funded inheritance scheme and you know why the taxpayers of australia should be funding the inheritance of you know 55 year olds inheriting you know mum's flat just you know makes no sense at all um, but that's what we're doing it is that's it it is an unpopular policy it would be unpopular to change it but as i said pretty much anyone who's ever looked at it says this is crazy we should change the rules would make a quite big difference to the budget would also the moment in effect pensioners have incentives to stay in their existing house however large it is and indeed the larger the better Uh, and of course there's any number of reasons why from a housing policy perspective we would prefer two people who are retired and you know have no children to you know live in a smaller house with maybe only, only three bedrooms um, and turn over the old family home of six bedrooms to a family with children that will really use it.
1: Yes, let's hope they do that. Yeah. So uh, all these are parallel. In the US, the same arguments. The states play a bigger role in the superannuation in that regard, but they're very parallel and probably around the world. Uh, you know, Italy, the pensions, everything, and Greece and France. So let's talk about the the politics inside the politics, the people who are politicians, and what moves them. In the U.S., I was in politics a couple of years for different administrations. Came in, went out. Republicans, Democrats. Here. When I go to Canberra, I see the same people all the time. Uh, The politicians I know, many of them have never had any type of job outside of the political world. In the US, that is very unfamiliar. You're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a dentist. There are some now increasingly who've been politicians and uh, the civil service is a bit different. The top of our civil service are short-termers, not long-termers. Yeah. So how does this work in Australia and how does this influence policy?
2: Yeah, and, and how's it changing? Because I think it's a big part of this gridlock that we're seeing. So, so as you say, Australia has a slightly different setup in terms of how its public sector works. So we have a permanent public service, obviously one for the Commonwealth and one for each of the states and territories. Uh, And so the most senior advisor, if you like, to um, uh, a minister, an elected government official, um, uh, will be um, the secretary, as we call them, the secretary of a department. Uh, And they are permanent employees, um, uh, at least that's the theory, um, and most of them are career employees. They will join the public service um, quite young and essentially work their way up through the ranks. Then we have a completely different class of what we call political advisors, ministerial advisors. So these are people who are employed directly by the minister. Um, They work in the minister's office. In theory, they have no decision-making power at all. And I'll come back to that theory in a moment. They very much stand and fall with their minister. So if the government loses office, they all have no job, you know, literally the next day. Um, uh, And uh, they're often um, uh, drawn from the party. Now that said, that's the kind of official theory of it. The way that it used to work when this was set up in the sort of 80s and these ministerial advisors became much more part of the system was that many of them in practice were in fact drawn from the public service. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the Hawking Keating era, many of the so-called chiefs of staff, so that's the most senior ministerial advisor in a minister's office, many of those chiefs of staff were in fact very senior public servants who essentially took leave from the public service to go and work directly for the minister, did that for a while, and then kind of moved back to the public service or went into academia or whatever it might be. These days, that's very unusual. Less than 20% of those working in ministerial offices are um, uh, former public servants, um, and uh, very, very few of the chiefs of staff are former public servants. Instead, most ministerial advisors have done student politics or got interested in politics when they were at university. They've, at quite a young age, gone and got a job as a junior ministerial advisor. Uh, and then that's been their life. Uh, and they spend five, 10 years working their way up through the ranks as ministerial advisor. And then often they seek pre-selection, often successfully these days. Uh, they get elected as a minister, sorry, elected as a member of parliament. Often they ultimately then become ministers. Uh, and after they finished in, in politics, they go and join you know some kind of government relations job, either for a corporate or working for some kind of government relations firm or they work um, uh, as a director of a board appointed by a government. Um, So we have grown this political class where their their vocation, their entire life's vocation, is politics. And that is very different from the past, um, where, yes, a very large proportion of people in politics, so members of parliament and therefore ministers, had been lawyers or doctors or teachers or... Um, very famously, um, Australia has a Prime Minister, Ben Chifley, who drove a train. Like, that was his job. Um, back, I might add, when driving a train was, you know, actually quite a sophisticated job.
1: Well, <laughs> um, Harry Truman was a haberdasher.
2: Yeah. Um, these days, there's no, there are no members of Parliament who have driven a train.
1: I dare say you'd find some members of the US Congress who've done equivalent jobs, worked at Walmart or something like that, um, who are members of Congress. Uh, Ocasio Torres is an example of that. She was a waitress. uh, This last cycle, uh, two members of uh, the teaching profession who never had another job, won seats in Congress.
2: And I think that gives them a life experience. It gives them a um, life experience of having
1: worked in the community, lived in that community. Uh, But pre-selection is very different in the United States. You run for pre-selections among all the people.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things about that background is it tends to make you a lot more focused on... um, What am I going to leave as a legacy? You know, I'm in politics because I frankly want to change the country. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's not my life. If I lose the election, well, you know, I'll go back to being a teacher. Um, And there's nothing wrong with being a teacher. Um, Whereas if this has been your entire life, then you worry really hard about, you know, winning the next election is everything. It is literally your life on the line. Um, And if it doesn't work out, then you want to make really sure that there's some kind of job for you just outside of politics, but where your relationships with government will be essential so that you can essentially stay in the game, because frankly, that's the only game you know. Um, And that's, of course, the vice that we've got in terms of gridlock. If you've got a lot of people in Parliament who've got other careers or have had other careers and who are there because they want to change the country and who know that you know, if they pursue something unpopular, or if they pursue something that some in their party don't like, well, that's unfortunate, and they might lose office, even in worst case, but at least they'll have had a go. And yeah. at least there's a chance, they will change the country on the way through. Whereas if an increasing number of your politicians, politics is their life, number one, they've probably got less view about what the country needs. They've for so long been playing this game about how do I win the media war today as opposed to, to worrying about how do I improve the country over the next 15 years? But they've kind of forgotten how to worry about the future of the country for the next 15 years. And then all of their immediate incentives in terms of, you know, frankly, future income are around not rocking the boat. Uh, and so that's, I think, contributed to gridlock in Australia. I think that this is a bit different to other countries. I think the way that these political advisor classes grown up in Australia, um, although politics is professionalized around the world, it's it's perhaps worse in Australia than many other places. Um, I know that it's the the political advisor group is much smaller, much less influential, much less part of becoming a member of parliament um, in the United Kingdom than it is in Australia. So. I think there are differences, and I think this is one where Australia... But in the UK,
1: that's very similar. Many of the people who serve in Parliament were political advisors.
2: Many, but not as many. Not and as many. And there's just far fewer... In the US, it's very uncommon.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's better to marry a congressman <laughs> and get the seat from that than to be <laughs> an advisor. Because advisors are looked down on. Yeah. Uh The big advisors are in congressional um, uh, organizations like the Office of Budget, which is a congressional Office of Budget, or there's a defense appropriation agency. These are professionals and they very seldom change when a new administration comes in.
2: And and so I think they're almost the equivalent of our permanent public service. That's right. And
1: they undid Trump. Yeah. Remember? They came and testified against him because their loyalty was to the people of the United States, not to the president, which he could not understand.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the other things that's been happening in Australia and has been contributing to gridlock is that our public service is less independent than it was. Mm. So our public service used to, for example, put out substantial publications that were not necessarily, you know, the views of the government of the day, but um. They were designed to, frankly, educate the public and, you know, make people understand what the issues were or help people understand what the issues were. And, and there's a very famous incident of, of Paul Keating being asked on national television, you know, well, the Treasury's just put out such and such a report that says blah, you know, like, you know, don't you think that blah is ridiculous? And, and he said, well, yes, I do think that blah is ridiculous. And they said, but Treasury says that, that this is a good idea. And he said, well, but that's Treasury's view. That's not my view. Now, it is unimaginable that any public service department in Australia today would publish anything that would lead their minister to say, that's the department's view, not my view. They would just never publish anything anymore that the minister didn't agree with 100%.
1: Let me give you what happens in the US. We have several, uh, 10 uh, federal district banks. They all have a board. They all have publications and the district bank in Kansas city has written things about inflation that the treasurer disagrees with. And everyone says, that's okay. Because the district bank in Massachusetts and Boston agrees, you know? Uh, And I think that's the tradition in the U S that if you are in one of those roles, you play it. Uh, as a professional.
2: Yeah. Well, we still retain that with the Reserve Bank, and the Reserve Bank is one of the few institutions in Australia that does still put out publications that I suspect the Treasurer doesn't always agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it has retained that independence, and I suspect one of the reasons for that is um, uh, partly the history means that governments have been very reluctant to meddle with uh, um, appointments, senior appointments to the Reserve Bank and they're protected by statute. Uh, and the other thing is that because the reserve bank um, uh, essentially plays the currency um, and its job is to stabilize the currency which inherently means that it it essentially bets against whatever is the latest fad and that turns out to be a very good strategy in the long run um, essentially it makes money it makes quite a lot of money (laughs) and so it has no trouble funding its own research and government can't say, don't do that or we'll cut your funding because the the Reserve Bank says, it ain't your money. It's it's the Reserve Bank's money um, that is funding this. I think the But in the US,
1: that- for example, the Department of Agriculture has a big, very big think tank, you probably know of it. And um, they go after Monsanto and people like that. And the, the government doesn't like it. Uh, OSHA is another one who's gone after the government on its own procedures with respect to health and safety, yeah, and of course, the big one is um uh, NOAA that looks after the seas and the air, and the report that they made helped Obama get us into the um climate change in Paris. It was yeah. a, based on their report, yeah, but the director where Trump came in got fired,
2: yeah. Uh, And we have institutions like CSIRO, which is the Commonwealth Science and Industry Research Organisation, that is a very substantial research, scientific research organisation.
1: And Grattan Institute.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, the difference is that Grattan Institute is not dependent on annual funding from the Commonwealth Government, and so we've continued to say things they don't like, whereas I think it would be fair to say that the CSIRO has become more and more cautious over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, Essentially, as governments have told it, if it kind of steps out of line, um, it will... um, feel the financial consequences. Uh, And so you've got those semi autonomous organisations like the CSIRO, and then you've got the actual departments of government, Treasury, for example, used to publish about 12 articles a year in a thing that they call the Treasury Roundup. They were quite I mean, they were they were from an academic standard, they were very scholarly. Um, From a public policy point of view, they were often quite pointed in terms of being focused on areas of current debate and and providing a a very thoughtful analysis of them treasury has stopped publishing those really um and uh you know it's a it used to be that public service departments would routinely put in submissions to major parliamentary inquiries that were not the view of the government of the day indeed often the departments would disagree with each other and of course if you really believe in public debate then kind of Disagreement in the public square is kind of a good thing, not it's a bad thing. It's a very thing. good thing. <laughs> and and one of the, one of the reasons that it's happened in the last twenty years, about one third of all of the secretaries of Commonwealth government departments have effectively been fired. One in three. These are supposedly permanent employees, career bureaucrats, and one in three have been fired. Now that inherently means the other two. Uh, either one had the right opinions to start with, or two are uh, probably being that much more careful about their opinions from here on.
1: That's right. That's what Trump did. Um, hmm. Now, gridlock is not a good thing. What can you see that can be done to help the public? For example, 70% of the public in the United States wants the text changes so they're more fair. 70 some percent. Um, a large percentage of people uh, want fair elections in the United States, a silly little thing. Uh, Democrats and Republicans, but the legislators don't. Uh, here, you mentioned some, particularly in my area, in urban policy. I wrote a help write a report for high-speed rail, hired by the government, to write it as a contractor. Uh, It was shelved uh, because the guys at the top didn't want to hear it. How do we change that so that the public gets the story and the public helps make the story come true?
2: Yeah. Look, I think there's a number of things that we can do um, that will help. Um, there is no doubt that setting up independent institutions that publish things, and, and publish things is the crucial part, um, can make a substantial difference. You know, the Congressional Budget Office has, over the years, made a substantial difference to American public life. Doesn't mean it's perfect, but it's definitely helped. Um, actually, being able to publish reports like yours on a high-speed rail, they certainly help. They don't necessarily guarantee victory, but they make it a lot easier. And one of the findings that came out of our work in gridlock was, particularly in terms of overcoming vested interests, if there's nothing out there that's been independently published, almost always the vested interests win. Yes. If something has been published, then there is quite a good chance that the vested interests will lose. Mm -hmm. No guarantee, but it certainly helps. And it gives you a, a pretty good chance of overcoming vested interests. So setting up these kind of independent bodies, setting them up so that they have the right to publish things irrespective of what the government thinks about them. Uh, and that implies, to the extent that you can, guaranteeing their funding as well.
1: And how do you do that? I mean, so the way that Australia has done this,
2: government. yeah, the way that Australia has done this is that a number of these institutions have been set up as um, uh, technically bodies of parliament. So our Parliamentary Budget Office, as the name suggests, effectively, or not more than that, legally, reports to Parliament, Mm -hmm. not to the government of the day. The Auditor General is the same, reports to Parliament, not to the government of the day. Now, that doesn't stop governments from trying to clip their funding, but precisely because their parliamentary offices, um, uh, if they do clip the funding, that tends to be very, very transparent, and lots of people can yell at them in unison, Uh, And governments are usually reluctant to do that. Um, So those kinds of things can definitely help. Then there are things that we can do to try and weaken this professionalisation of politics. So, for example, we could, as a recent review of the Commonwealth Public Service recommended, we could um, uh, limit the number of ministerial advisors, require that a certain percentage of them be drawn from the public service and and implement a code of conduct and enforce it in such a way that we affect the moment is the power to operate behind closed doors in what one former head of the Australian public service described as a black hole of accountability Mm -hmm. Um, similarly on the public service side we could put substantial things in place in fact going back to arrangements that existed 20 years ago that um have a much more formalized process for appointing secretary so that it's not just whoever the minister would like, but um, it's somebody who has essentially been recommended for their expertise. Like and the US, you have
1: to go through the Senate. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and we could definitely put processes in place that would um, make it much more difficult to fire. Them.
0: Um, mm-hmm.
2: At the moment, you can literally fire them as a minister anytime you don't like them. And indeed, the now Deputy Prime Minister, but at the time Minister for Agriculture, um, has talked publicly about the way that the department wasn't doing what he liked. So he called the secretary into his office and fired him. And after that, the department was much more helpful.
1: Oh, good God.
2: Um, Now, that is frankly appalling. uh, More appalling is that there is absolutely nothing in the system that would stop him from doing that again tomorrow. What else? Uh, So look, those things would help. Um, You know, public interest journalism definitely helps. Um, And of course, Australia has the advantage that it already has the ABC. um, An ABC that many in the Commonwealth government have been doing their best one way or another to clip its wings. Um, Although interestingly, both sides in politics in Australia We have this um, uh, Australian Associated Press, which is essentially a non-aligned press group that um, provides material um, that is then syndicated to all of the other media outlets that they can all use. Uh, And so it's a good way of covering stuff that kind of matters, but it doesn't matter so much that every single news agency can afford to send its own reporter Mm. to go and find out whatever happened. It it got itself into trouble financially and um, all sides of politics united behind essentially putting, you know, in the scheme of things, I think it's about $20 million a year of public money into it, which in the scheme of public money is it's, it's irrelevant, but actually makes a really big difference because it means a whole series of things, you know, particularly in regional areas, particularly in local government, particularly in the kind of like detail of administration would otherwise just never get covered. Um, and would be invisible from a media perspective. So that's one of those things that ironically our system has done in the last two years that will help. But there's lots of other things that you could do in public journalism, public one, journalism as well.
1: One of the things that several states have done in the US is term limits. Yeah. And there's a big push to limit members of Congress. Nancy Pelosi's 80 years old. And the Republicans would rather have a term limit than have another Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) Um, And that's becoming popular. I lived both in California before and after term limits. What term limits mean is the politician comes in and tries to graze long enough to get another good job on the other side. He, and the rest are crusaders, about a third are crusaders and they get things done change their own driving law or something and leave. But many of them come in to use the position in politics to get another position. So I'm not sure about term limits, but I think there ought to be some at least test of your capacity to serve. Yeah,
2: Look, I, think that help. I mean, I think some of the other thing, yeah. And a limit on Look, the, I, how I think long that you that expect they... it to serve. Yeah. yeah, look, I, I think there's something to be said for it. Um, I think um, the things I've talked about already in terms of um, ministerial advisors might well actually reduce the number of politicians coming from that track and increase the number coming from, from other jobs. That inherently means that they've got other jobs to go back to. Some of the other things that would help would be around um, uh, uh, uh donations and lobbying reform. And we haven't spoken that much about the influence of vested interests, but they're definitely one of the things that goes on. And there's no question that money buys access and access winds up meaning that you get your way more often than you would otherwise. Absolutely. And many of the states in Australia, ironically, have imposed quite significant limits on how much can be donated and, and how donations have to be disclosed. We don't have the same constitutional problems that the US has got. Um, in terms of being able to restrict um, donations. And there are some implied limits, constitutional limits in Australia, but um, I don't think they go nearly as far. And so it's much easier for governments to limit um, donations and also to make lobbying a lot more transparent. So so ministers in New South Wales and Queensland, for example, are required to effectively disclose on a regular basis who they met with and, roughly speaking, what they talked about. Now, those are both measures that the Commonwealth has resisted stoutly. Um, And I think that's a shame because I think, apart from anything else, Queensland and New South Wales demonstrate that you can do these things, um, substantially increase the transparency of government, uh, substantially ensure that all sides of an issue get listened to. And it appears that when you do it, the sky does not, in fact, fall in.
1: No, I went through it myself when I served on the commission in Sydney, that all my discussions were transparent. The developers didn't like it. (laughs) <laughs> but I had a person in the room who was recording everything and a yep. neutral to say, this is off limits. I didn't have to say it.
2: Yeah. Uh, and I think that that tends to lead to better government. You know, government behind closed doors where you make decisions for reasons that you are not prepared to disclose is usually bad government.
1: Yes. But some people go into government just for the, that purpose. <laughs> well, John, I think Some of these reforms are overdue. And uh, my small contribution to this is making this debate known. And I wanna thank you for helping me do it. Uh, Maybe only a few thousand people listen to us, but that one, two, three or 10 of them can help make a difference. And that's what we're here to do. Thank Thank you you very much.
2: It's been a pleasure to do my little part to help you make a difference, Ed. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you.
0: Check out some of the previous chats in this series by hunting down Pacific Conversations on your favourite podcast app. And there is information about chats past and future at edtalks.com.au. For weekly US news and current affairs, check out Ed Blakely's other podcast with myself, Sean Britton, US of Ed comes out every week. US of Ed, wherever you find good podcasts, as well as on Facebook and Twitter.